Word of God definitely certainly is alive. Good morning, everybody. If you are visiting with us, you're an honored guest. We're glad that you're here. If you're part of this family, likewise, we're glad that you're here. If you look around, we have a lot of people out of town this weekend. Uh, so just keep them in prayers. We have several families. Uh, so they'll be on the road. I don't know when. Uh, some today, some I know tomorrow. Uh, some are even flying. So just keep them in your prayers. Uh, God knows who they are. You might know who they are as you look around. Uh, but glad that you're here. Glad that you're here. Hey, I want to say this. Never thought I would. Uh, statement, but you know, I'll say it anyhow. I really, my family and I, Ian, Alice, and I, we appreciate the pounding you gave us last week. Um, yeah, we, we definitely appreciated the pounding. It took us a while to find where we can put these uh, groceries and these incredible gifts. Thank you so much. It blessed us tremendously. Ian wanted me to thank you ahead of time for all the new green beans that he can eat. Um, his mom, Allison, she'll cook those things for two hours, let them simmer in like her little concoction that she does and makes them unbelievable, and he just eats them up. And there's like a case of those green beans in the, in the, area, in the uh, garage area where we have all that stored. So he thanks you. Uh, in advance. Can't get him to eat a cookie, but we can get him to eat green beans. And so we're glad for something. Uh, so glad, glad for that. Also want to remind us as a church family, Taylor, she, one of our students here, she goes to Grove Christian Center about every Tuesday. She tries her best to do that after school. She has a heart to reach those who are, are hopeless with a message of hope. And she seeks to put skin on that hope by going and visiting and serving. Uh, she's the one who came up with this great thing we've called Undie Sunday, where you see the banks that, or the box out there where we're collecting underwear um, for those who don't have. They don't have some of the things that we have, and we take it for granted. But right now, they need shirts. They need T-shirts. They need socks, and they need pants. Uh, so we, if we can as a family, let's overwhelm them with love. Uh, let's not just support what Taylor's doing because she's doing this because of Jesus. Let's join her as she's doing this. Let's get in on what God is doing in her through her and get in on that. Um, we're committed to Grove uh, as one of our mission points as well. So this is another opportunity for us to serve and give. So try to bring that if you can. Uh, it'd be a good thing to put, uh, put some hope in their lives as well. So before we begin, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you're a God who gives us hope in Christ. And you give us all that we need and then some. Father, help us to set our hearts to that. Your word is alive and we ask that this morning your word would cut uh, through the darkness. Of, of our lives, uh, that it would be a message of hope uh, for us today. Father, may your spirit continue to work here. We ask you to continue to work. Be blessed by our time. Would you open our ears that we may hear? Would you open our eyes that we may see? Would you open our minds that we may think clearly and understand fully? Would you open our hearts that we may feel the invitation extended to us from you? through this gathering, through the music, through prayer, through conversation and community, through the teaching of your word, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to share with you a little bit, just sort of a side point, as we've been in our Gospel Mission of God series where we've been unpacking Romans 8, and we're going to be there a little while longer. Uh, we're, getting, we're going to start getting deeper and deeper and deeper. I'm purposefully being repetitive uh, because I want us to really wrestle with these things together. They say that the Father of all learning is indeed repetition. You see that in Scripture over and over again. As God repeated himself, it was like his highlighter, wanting his people to see what he was trying to say. Uh, but I wanted to tell you a little bit about my preaching sort of philosophy so you kind of understand where I'm coming from. Typically, the way I work is every week builds on the other. Uh, so if you miss a week, uh, you can catch up easy with the podcast, whatever. But typically, everything kind of builds on one another. And, and, and for, for one primary reason, 
I've heard people say, I'm leaving a church, or I came to this church because I wasn't getting fed where I have been. And um, I'm not going to feed you here. I'm not going to make you full. As a matter of fact, my preaching philosophy, what I feel God has called me to do, and and kind of the way he arranges teaching and preaching, is that I'm not here to, to feed anybody, but I am here to serve you sort of appetizers. If you will, I'm here to, 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 in the grace of God, the best I know how, deliver the word of God in such a way that it makes you hungry, hungrier, hungrier for something more. Because if you come here and you get everything you need, then what happens for six days? My prayer, my hope is that you come here, something happens. That's why I personally appreciate and enjoy the conversation, whether it be in disagreement, whether it be in agreement, whether it be sharing one another's thoughts and and ideas and experience and the teaching and way God's working it out in our lives. I appreciate that because that engages us in a conversation and that's biblical. It engages us in a conversation that doesn't just end here. It starts here and it carries through the week. It pushes you to get into the word and to go before the Lord in prayer and to engage in a conversation. So what I hope and what I pray is that you'll get an appetizer and that it'll be enough to make you hungry for the things and the truth of God so that you can discover more of who God is in your life through the week. And not just wait when you get here, but engage in conversation. We're a family here. If we're part of this family, we engage in that conversation through our small groups and through other avenues. And we carry on that conversation all of our lives as we spend time walking with God and interacting with his life and the life that he's offered us. So I just wanted to throw that out at you. And as I do, I want to ask you a question. And this isn't just some, uh, I couldn't come up with a better way to start the message Question. This is a sincere question that I want you to think about. What means most to you in life? And I, and I, and I mean that as, as general and as vague uh, and as big a question as that is. Uh, what means most to you in life? Because the reality of it is we organize our life around the things that matter most. We organize our time and our priorities and the way we spend our money, our thoughts and our affections around the things that matter most to us. So I want to ask you, as you look at your life and how it's organized, how it's prioritized, how it, what it looks like, where does it lead? Because that's typically what does matter most to us. And so then as you step back and you look at that, that trail of activity that takes place in your life, it leads to a throne room and on that throne sits whatever it is means most to you in life. And so you may look at that throne and you may see that thing sitting on the throne and you know as a follower of Christ, perhaps, not for all of us, maybe for some of us, that that thing doesn't belong on the throne. And so what does that do that makes you want to change? It makes you want to do things differently and so you, you set out to change. And the way we are at times and the way we think in our sort of American, sort of rugged ideal, sort of rugged individualism, we take this idea of we pull ourselves up our own bootstraps and we just change. And we rely on this thing that we call willpower, where we try to just, we we just try to will it. We we do everything we can. We we say, I just wish I had the willpower to change. And, And what ends up happening is we end up getting frustrated and we end up getting more anxious because we're praying to God that we change and we're trying to muster it up. We're trying to change all these external things to try and get us to change because we know that that thing doesn't belong on the throne. And so we try to exercise this willpower and somebody looks at you and say, well, you just need, you need to, you know, the willpower to do so. Well, the problem with willpower is that the will doesn't have any power the will has no power you can't cut someone open and find the will next to the gallbladder the will is simply our capacity to choose 
The will is our capacity to choose. If you look at your message map, you're going to notice on uh, the bulletin that I have a message map. And it's to try and give you a little something to go. I don't do this every week and won't do this every week. But every now and then in certain messages, I'll do this so you can kind of fill this in and go along. And then you can meditate on this and, and think through this and pray through this and measure it through Scripture. But the will has no power. It's just our capacity to choose. Do I wear gray pants or khaki pants? I chose khaki. I chose gray. The will, sort of the hinge upon which that decision was made. But the will is just our capacity to choose. A horse doesn't choose where it wants to go. The rider tells the horse where it goes. And the will is subject to the impulses of others. The will has its own riders. Three primary influencers of the will. Because the will is just a capacity to choose. So what is it that sends the impulse that causes the will or provokes the will to make a decision or lead to behavioral structures or things in our lives? Well, one is going to be the mind. As we think thoughts in our mind, they create emotions. And as we create emotions, they create impulses that move into our will. And our will, then it leads us to some sort of decision or some sort of behavior. The mind influences the will. The will is just the capacity to choose. The mind is the influencer. We have our bodies. Our bodies are made of just this complex inner structure of inner impulses that when it needs something... Tells our mind that it needs something. And our mind sends an impulse to the will and we make it happen. The body says, I am hungry. And it sends the impulse to the mind. And the mind sends it to the will. And the will says, I must get food. We think about our social context. Social context is an influencer of the will. It's funny, we think the social context is only a concern for like young people or students. Because the social context essentially is peer pressure. It's the way relationships influence us but it's not uh, an issue for young people it's an issue for human people social context people influence us relationships influence us but the will is just the capacity to choose it's the influencers that make the difference and so if we really want to change if we really want to see god change us In our lives, we're going to have to let go of this idea of willpower because the will has no power. Instead, what we're going to have to do is turn our attention towards the influencers. We're going to have to turn our attention towards the things that provoke and stir. The things that have the influence. The mind, the body, the social context. Peyton Manning understood this. Even for a Redskins fan, one could argue that Peyton Manning is one of the best quarterbacks to have played the game. There we go. We have one in strong agreement. Super Bowl 41, Indianapolis Colts versus Chicago Bears. Peyton Manning versus Rex Grossman. Rainy night that night. Rainy night. And if you remember Super Bowl 41, and if you don't, the story is simple. The Bears lost. Rex Grossman, the quarterback for the Bears, continued to fumble the ball because it was a, it was a wet night. Peyton Manning didn't fumble the ball once. He played fantastic in the rain. And so reporters found out weeks after the Super Bowl that Peyton Manning throughout the year will get together with his center and ask his center to snap him wet, slippery footballs. 
And he will take snaps throughout the year over and over again of wet footballs. Even though the Indianapolis Colts play in a dome. And would rarely play in the rain. But Peyton Manning understood something and understands something. He understood something that we could call the process of indirection. That change comes when we embrace a process of indirection. Here's what I mean. Peyton Manning did what he could do, like taking wet footballs throughout the year, to enable him to do what he couldn't do otherwise, like play great in a rainy game. The process of indirection is very simple, but it's it's somewhat complicated. We're going to unpack this over the next three weeks in a very, very particular and very practical way. But the process of indirection is simply doing what you can do to enable you to do what you can't do otherwise. You can't change on your own. And you can't muster up enough willpower to change. You can't find the peace in your heart that you lack. And you can't make yourself be who you want to be. But you can do what you can do. And what you can do is change the way you think about it. You can change your mind and change the way you think. Jesus understood this because in his message that he called the gospel of the kingdom of God, he, when he went out preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, he made it a very clear point to say, repent and believe. We've looked at this text. It's in Mark chapter 1. It's going to be on the screen. And, and it says that he preached that the kingdom of God had come. That was his gospel. And he said, repent and believe. The gospel of God invites us to change our mind. The word repent has this very negative connotations because we think of a stump preacher and a tent calling out repent and we think of this negative things like you know you only repent if you've lived in sin all week long but the problem with that is that's really not all that repentance means it involves that but repent in the greek metanoia means a change of mind what jesus is doing is he's calling people and he's inviting people to a new way of life with this kingdom of god right this kingdom of god is this new way of life take away your kingdoms live under the rule and reign and love of god but if you're going to have a new way of life you've got to embrace a new way of thinking because you can't change your own life so jesus instead of saying do obedience for the kingdom of god is at hand he said repent and trust He said, change. He said, change the way you think about the world. And if you change the way you think about the world, you will change the way you live in it. We must change the way we think. Repentance should be a continuing ethic in the life of a Christ follower. It's not something we do when we just simply sin. It is something we do every day when we wake up to the reality of the kingdom of God in our life and we live in our culture and our context with our, with our relationships and our, and our physical practices and all the things that we do. And we remind ourselves that I no longer see the world the way I used to see it. I'm from South Georgia. You're raised in South Georgia. You're going to inherit a view of the world. All right. You're going, some not so good. And so you, at some point you got to wake up and decide, you know, the way I was raised to see the world isn't the way the kingdom of God says the world should be. And so Jesus calls and says, then repent, change the way you think about the world, not just the way you see, but the way you think about the world. Culture thinks a lot of things. You and I, marriages, we, we think a lot of things, but do we think the way Jesus has invited us to think? Because we may have to change the way we think 
in order to change the way we live. What we try to do is skip the thinking part and go straight to the living part. And that's what leads us to peacelessness and anxiety and frustration and tired Christians. Christians with no joy in a church that just doesn't ever move. All of us have been a part of it in our life where all we do is try to change, 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 change the way we live. We try to change the external and we don't deal with the internal. We don't attempt to change the way we think. But Jesus is saying if you change the way you think, you will change the way you live. That was Paul's position of the gospel. His position of the gospel was that if you embrace the gospel fully and allow it to change the way you think about you, about the church, about people, about the world, you will develop growth and have a changed direction in life. Paul made a big deal about this gospel Over 76 times the gospel is mentioned. The gospel literally meaning good news. This gospel proclaiming that the rule and reign of God has been made available to any and all through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That essentially, in a very simplistic, possibly oversimplified way, is what the gospel is. And that's good news. But it's so much more than that. And Paul mentions that word 76 times. Or I'm sorry, the Bible does the New Testament 76 times. Paul mentions it 60. The gospel was a big deal to the apostle Paul. It was central to what he taught in scripture and you can see that you can see that all throughout the text in first corinthians 15 he says now brothers i want to clarify for you the gospel i proclaim to you you received it and have taken your stand on it you are also saved by it if you hold on to the message i proclaim to you unless you believe to no purpose first corinthians 15 1 through 6 Paul says, for I passed on to you in verse 3, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. I want you to look at what Paul says. I want to clarify for you the gospel that I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. See, for many of us, the gospel, the problem with this whole message is that the gospel is an evangelistic thing. It's only what we share with people who aren't Christ followers. But what Paul is trying to say is that the gospel is for Christians too. The gospel is not only something that ignited your faith. It's not only something that ignited your salvation. It is also something that leads you into a deeper experience of your salvation. It is also something that grows you. It is something that you stand in. The gospel is not just information and doctrines. Matter of fact, the gospel isn't any. The gospel is Christ. The gospel is what God has done for the world in Christ Jesus, period. Now, that means a lot of things, but that is the gospel. For I passed on to you what was most important, Christ. He died, he raised, he was seen. Paul goes on, he says, and even in Colossians. He says, Colossians 1, 5 and 6, you have already heard about this hope and the message of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing All over the world. Just as it has among you since the day you heard it. And recognized God's grace in the truth. The gospel isn't just for those outside of the kingdom of God. The gospel is the fuel that grows those living in the kingdom of God. The gospel is what moves us and motivates us. It is the power of God. Look at what Paul said in Romans chapter 1. 
He said, for I am not ashamed, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for in it God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. From beginning to beginning to end it, from faith to faith, it is God's righteousness revealed just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The gospel involves and invites a changed way of thinking about the world. It doesn't matter what politics says. It matters what the kingdom of God says. It doesn't matter what culture says. It matters what the kingdom of God says. And then how that lines up or goes against whatever politics, culture, whatever. Jesus is inviting us to a changed way of thinking. And if we embrace the gospel, it will change the way we think. If we change the way we think, it will change the way we live. It will change the way we obey, which is why Paul gets into Romans chapter 8, which is where we've been. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. What is our gospel position? Anybody remember? Yes, it's in Christ. That is our gospel position. That is where we are. In Christ Jesus, because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. Nothing we could ever do, right? Nothing we could ever do could get us right with God. It is limited. The law, limited, limited by who? Limited by the flesh. What the law could do, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending His own Son in flesh like ours under sin's domain. And as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement could be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. All this is saying, again, is that Christ is the one who sets us free. We cannot save ourselves. For those whose lives are according to the flesh, think about the things of the flesh. But those whose lives are according to the Spirit, think about the things of the Spirit. For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. A mindset is key. To change. A mindset. And so when you read the Gospels, and when you read the Epistles, when you read the New Testament, you find Paul working out this idea of a mindset. Paul is always proposing as a mindset in his letters. Jesus is always proposing as a mindset for us. If we want to change, here's the mindset. The Gospel motivates obedience. The Gospel motivates obedience. That is Paul's Mindset proposition. It's going to be the gospel that motivates obedience. It's not going to be fear. Now we could here, we could take that position because hell is real. And we could preach a lot about hell because it's real. And God, because he is good and because he loves, will give people what they want. If I want to live my life away from God, he will allow me to live my life away from God even forever. Hell is hell because God is not there. God We'll do that. We could preach that and we could try to motivate people by fear. Boy, don't make me come back there. Okay. This time. And that obedience might work for a little bit. But it'll lose steam. We could motivate by guilt. We could throw out all the things that God has done for you and all the things you deserve. And that is all partly, I mean, that is all true. I deserve hell. There's a, there's a lot I have that I don't deserve. But we could try to motivate obedience through guilt. And we could say, you know, you should because of this. You shouldn't because of that. And it's like, it's like mom used to tell me, you know, don't you know all the things your dad and I used to do for you? Why do you do? Clean your room. Okay, that, that works now. But like next time it's not happening. <laughs> 
it doesn't motivate and sustain obedience. But we could do it because it happens in Christendom. Blessing could be how we motivate obedience. We could say, you know, if you have a lot of stuff, you know, then God loves you a lot and, and um, you know, he's good because of what I have. Oh, praise Jesus, I have so much. And so I obey him with all my life until the blessings are gone. And then obedience falls short. Or we could go with a more biblical approach and strongly stand in the reality that it is the gospel that motivates obedience. It is the gospel. It is taking a look at what it is Christ has done and taking a look at who I am in light of Christ and knowing that everything I have and everything I need is in Christ. Everything. And I've been given everything in Christ. And it's a salvation that I have that never ends. I have life without end. Amen. Period. That is the way it is. And I will have that because of what Christ has done. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. That changes a person. That leads to a sense of love. And it is love that motivates obedience. And it is love that motivates obedience at last. Not fear, not guilt, not blessing. Gospel. And so what I want to try and do over the next few weeks, what I've tried to do, and you may be thinking I'm doing too much, and you know, in a little bit of you may think I've went too long doing it, but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to share with you the reality that it is a gospel that motivates us. It is the gospel that changes the way we think, which eventually changes the way we live. And it is that kind of motivation that will sustain a life of joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. That is what will move us and lead us to being obedient people in a disobedient world, to show people the love of Jesus, the hope that they need, the hope that they want, the hope that gospel gives. We need to marinate and soak our hearts in the truth of the gospel. And if you read the epistles of the Apostle Paul, you will see this because he does something like this. Because Paul understood gospel math. I call this Christian growth mathematics. You ready? I used to manage millions of dollars, but now I can barely add 10 plus 10. Ask the elders. Gospel obligations minus gospel declarations equals growing or surmounting frustrations. If I sit up here and just talk about what should be done and what should be done and what should be done and what should be done, and you tell your kids what should be done and what should be done and what should be done and what should be done, and that's all we ever do, and that's what we do to the world out there, we just position ethics and we position morality and just simply say, this should be done, this should be done, and this should be done, it will lead to people trying to do something they don't have the full strength to do because it's not changing the external that changes the internal. And it will lead to frustration. I cannot muster up the joy I want. I pray, God, I pray, I pray, I read the Bible, I pray, I read the Bible, I help the poor, I pray, and it's still not happening in here. That is because we've forgotten the declaration of the gospel. And the declaration of the gospel is, you are who Christ says you are. Men, you don't have to work hard to make your family happy. Be who God made you in him to make your family happy. And you will work hard as a result. But your identity is not found in your jobs. Your identity is found where? In your gospel position. And that is in Christ. And that is the gospel. That I am in Christ because of Christ. The gospel is what God has done for us. Not what we do for God. And when we understand that and soak ourselves in it. It changes how we live. And then eventually we find ourselves surrendered fully. And living for the one who set us free. 
But if we spend our time on the gospel obligations and we leave off the gospel decorations, it will just end up in frustration. And when you see Paul's letters, read Ephesians. First three chapters, here's what it has to do with. Christ is supreme. You have everything you need in Christ. All spiritual blessings. Christ, Christ, Christ is supreme. Chapters one through three. Chapter four begins. Now this is what it looks like to live as one who understands Christ is supreme. He spends the first three chapters with gospel decorations before he ever touches gospel obligations. In the, in the book of Colossians, Paul does the same thing. He spends the first two chapters dealing with gospel decorations. Christ is the invisible, the image of the invisible God. He is supreme above all things. Christ, Christ, Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, here's what it looks like for you to live as one who understands everything I've declared to you. It's a far different approach. In the Romans, that's all he's doing. The first 11 chapters, ad nauseum, Paul is saying, Christ, Christ, Christ. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, now this is what it looks like to live as one who understands the gospel decorations. Gospel decorations must always precede the obligation so that it gives birth and fuels the Christian life, which gives birth to obedience that sustains its obedience that lasts. The gospel is good news because it is about a God who did for me what I could never do for myself. God does for you what you can never do for yourself in Christ. You can't give yourself joy and peace, but He can. He created it. And it comes in Christ. So it's called the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of you. What must happen is a change of mind, a changed way of thinking. And it must be a gospel-centered way of thinking. That is what Paul meant in Romans 8 when he said, a life according to the Spirit is one that has its mind set on things of the Spirit. Has its mind set on the gospel. Not why everyone else isn't living it. Mind set on the gospel. And that is where Paul flows. What we have to believe what we need God to change in our thinking is that the gospel is not information. It is not mere information. It is an invitation. A daily invitation to be changed. The gospel isn't something you heard when you first believed. The gospel is something that you repeat to yourself daily. Sean was baptized into Christ last Sunday. And the gospel, Sean, is something you need to remind yourself of daily. Because that's who you are, bro. I need you to remind me of that too. That's why we're together in this place. It is a daily invitation to be changed. It's an ongoing development of a changed way of thinking that gives birth to a changed way of life. In other words, what is our gospel position? In Christ in the gospel, in a changed way of thinking, we learn how to become practically what we are positionally. In other words, you learn how to become in a practical sense with what you do. Because I know right now for many of you, everything I'm saying is somewhat of an abstract idea. It's like, okay, it's information and somehow it's supposed to change. It's an abstract idea. Here's the way it works. You learn how to become practically what you already are spiritually. You don't have to go out and try and get any more of it. You already have it in Christ. So we spend our time in Christian growth not trying to go out and get it. We spend our time in Christian growth trying to live in the reality of what we already have. You become practically what you are positionally. 
And here's what it looks like in a very real, practical way. Romans 8, verse 5 through 8. For those whose lives are according to the flesh, think about the things of the flesh. But those whose lives are according to the Spirit, about the things of the Spirit. For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's law. It is unable to do so. Those whose lives are unable to please God are the ones lived in the flesh. The gospel gives birth to a practical daily reality of life and peace by turning our attention towards the work of the Holy Spirit in us. If we remind ourselves of the gospel, it's a real simple message ultimately. If we remind ourselves of the reality of the gospel, then it will change us because the Holy Spirit is working in us. It will keep us from looking out to change and start us looking up as God looks in and works in to change. So I wanted to close with just some practical things. Because I wanted you to see how this played out. Some, practical, some practicalities of a gospel-powered life. My worth is not found in what I do, what I have, or human approval. No, my worth is found because I'm in Christ, and in Christ I have everything. In Christ I have true joy, life, and peace. In Christ I have it all. And then what happens? See, the gospel reminds me that I have everything I need in Christ, and so the Spirit then begins to work inside of me, changing the way I live my life. I deserve no real glory for what I do. I don't deserve any credit because everything I have comes from God. Everything I have comes as a result of grace. That's what the gospel reminds me. The gospel reminds me that I don't trust in my own performance. The gospel reminds me I trust in the performance of Christ. So now the Spirit of God begins to work in me and I'm free to just be who God's called me to be. The gospel says I own nothing. See, I own nothing because I realize that in the gospel, I own everything. And only through the gospel, only through the death, resurrection, and life, and living in the kingdom of God, do I even have anything. I didn't earn what I have. God is the one who provided me the strength to have what I have. It's all blood-bought. Paul said in Colossians 6, 14, God forbid I boast in anything else but the cross of Jesus Christ, my Lord. I have everything because of the cross. So I own nothing. So here, you need $10? I can do my best to give that away because I own nothing. Now, I'm going to struggle with this. I struggle with all these. I'm not telling you I've got this figured out. I'm struggling with this, but the gospel is bringing me to center because it's helping me change the way I think and it's starting to change the way I live. I have no right to treat others differently because of their past or their color of their skin. The gospel says that Christ died for all and that in Christ all can be known and loved. And live with God and be a part of this church. I don't choose who I sit beside in the table of the kingdom of God. I don't. Black, white, male, female. Homeless, not. The gospel says church isn't what I do. It's who I am living in God's kingdom. It's part of my citizenship it's not an activity it is a part of identity because i'm in christ and you're in christ that makes us family and as family we come together and as family we live together and so then the gospel tells me i serve in the church i give to the church because i am the church and the holy spirit of god begins to work in me to change me next week we're going to talk Gospel power part two, but we're going to talk more about the Holy Spirit. 
because this is where Paul takes it deeper. See, Paul says we've got to change our mind, and changing our mind enables us to allow the Spirit to do the work He needs to do. We cooperate with the Spirit's work when we start to change our mind. God changes us. It's the gospel power of God. It is an invitation to be changed daily. Live a gospel-centered life this week. Live a gospel-centered life.